On today's episode of 90 Degrees, what watching game film captures that the stats miss, how fast you should move off your off-season priors, and we share our power ratings for all 32 teams heading into the season. That and more on today's episode of 90 Degrees. Welcome to the 90 Degrees Podcast, where we take an inside look into the sports betting industry. I'm your host, G-Stack George, and I'm excited I got a friend of the show. Never been on this show, but I've talked with him many times, and uh, I think you're going to really enjoy what he has to say. I've got Sharp Clark, NFL originator, analyst at 4 for 4 Bets. Clark, thanks for joining me. Yeah, I've been excited about this. This is the highlight of my week. I always love talking football with you, George. Same. I, I want to ask, and for those who don't know, uh, how does your sports betting journey start? Like, when do you get into it and how has it developed over the years? Yeah, I was a casual NFL fan or casual. I, I have that gene that I think some people have that makes them ultra competitive in everything that they do. So I was an NFL fan. And obviously that led me to fantasy football, competitive outlets, ca- casual betting on my opinions. Um, and then it was really 2019 that I decided to kind of up level and take it to the next level and really try to develop a like an actual successful betting system. Um, and then in the pre in the you know off season between 2019 and 2020, you know COVID hit. I was stuck in my you know room my my house for days and months with my computer, and and I just started like okay, I'm going to develop this into like a robust model and process, and and that was kind of when I started betting seriously. It was in in that 2020 season. And for those who don't know, you have a completely different process than most of us. What is your process uh, when it comes to sports betting? I'm watching every snap and I'm trying to, I I basically create my own metrics. And and the goal is to uh, judge outcomes holistically and and probabilistically. I, I think that one thing that we don't often recognize as a betting community is that uh, data has bias, right? Like we think of like there's there's either data backed analysis or there's like biased subjective analysis, but objective analysis contains its own set of biases. Um, so for example, like data, you know, play by play data and summary statistics and, and APA per play and all that kind of stuff that contains a bias towards outcomes over probabilities, which most people don't think of as a bias. They, they think that's just like how things are measured, but like every event is a probabilistic event. And I think we intuitively understand that in terms of results. Like we look back at last year and say, hey, the Vikings, they outperformed. They, they weren't really the quality of a 13-win team because a lot of those outcomes were not highly likely outcomes. But we don't often take that to the play-by-play level where every play has a range of outcomes and a percentage associated with it. We only <clears throat> we only seem to take the results. <clears throat> Sorry. So my, my goal is to try to capture that metrically and, and then use those metrics to uh, create numbers and make bets. Okay, so I love that because you're right about we understand uh, the concept of variance and, and how it skews results, and yet we take uh, a play-by-play basis and the data as being facts and not uh, uh, understanding the probabilities and the variance that goes within every play. Um, how do you uh, like? What are you looking for when you say how uh, successful was a player? How successful was an offensive drive? I, I don't want to get too specific, um, but I, let, let's use an example, right? So la- in last year's playoffs, in the entire playoffs, the 13th highest EPA on any give- on any play of the entire playoffs was on that fourth and eight where Jalen Hurts completed the ball, completed the ball to Devonta Smith down the sideline. 
and and Shanahan inexplicably did not challenge it. Um, absurd, right? All he has to do is throw the flag, and that that's a that's a fourth down failure. It's a turnover, not even a, like a punt. It's an actual turnover to San Francisco. Instead, they get first and goal on like the five, and they score a touchdown, right? So like that play was a was a great play by Devonta Smith, great play by Jalen Hurts, like, but probabilistically more often than not, that's incomplete, right? I mean, there, there's so many scenarios where the other coach throws the flag. There's so many scenarios where the ref sees the ball hit the ground as he's trying to secure it. Um, and so that's kind of an example of what I'm trying to capture is like, I don't treat that play as a full four EPA per play I'm, I'm or EPA. I'm, I'm treating it as a probabilistic event that in most cases is, is actually going to be incomplete. So I also watch film, but I don't, create like a rating system like you do but i look for the stuff that the the numbers don't capture don't capture and that's one of them or like you know missed uh missed penalties and stuff that will skew the result and 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 i don't believe the true outcome of the game uh is reflected in the stats so that's one thing we've uh, bonded over having a process of watching film and not enough people do it uh what i know what my work week looks like um uh, Monday is my film watching day and I'm exhausted by the end of it. Um, what is your, what does your week look like from let's say Monday morning to Sunday night? On, on, so Sunday is actually my biggest work day because I'm watching, you know, I'll, I'll watch a morning game. I actually love when there's a London game cause that like extends my work day earlier, but, um, or European game. Uh, so I'm watching film on Sunday and then I take a break after the morning games and then usually 45 minutes to an hour after the morning games end, they start uploading the replays on, on NFL.com. And that's when I start watching film. So I'm actually not watching the afternoon games. Typically, I'm actually reviewing film from the morning games uh, all the way through Sunday night, usually. Um, so I try to get as many games knocked out as I can. You know, I think a lot of people watch every game, but like multiple TVs at the same time. So they're not really studying every game individually. I'm focused on one game at a time and I actually grade every play individually. So it takes me a little bit longer to get through the games. And then Monday, I try to watch another four or five games. Tuesday, usually like three or four, try to wrap up on Wednesday, depending on what else I got going on. Sometimes takes me into Thursday. I, I try to prioritize games that feature teams that I anticipate making a bet on the following week based on what the line is and what my numbers say at the time. Uh, but I typically try to wait, unless I really have a strong feeling on the line, I typically try to wait until I've watched both teams play, if applicable, before making that bet. Okay, I've got it. Um, so by Wednesday, you're done your work. You've got your updated ratings. Uh, when you're looking to make bets on Thursday and Friday, does it bother you if the market has moved already and you didn't get a line that perhaps you could have got if you watched the game a day or two earlier? I, I'm usually not betting on Thursday and Friday because... If it's a game that I like, I probably prioritized watching those teams earlier in the week. So I'm usually rolling my bets, you know, day by day, depending on, you know, what the limits are. Usually by Tuesday, limits are high enough for anything that I want to do at this point in my in my betting journey. Um, but I understand that as, you know, as my goals go up and the betting limits go up, I have to bet later in the week. Um, and so that's actually something that I'm going to be working on this year is is tracking the bets that I would make each day, theoretically. Like if I had to wait until that day to make that bet, like what, what games would I still be playing? And I'm going to be tracking my performance on each day to kind of see like how I do against various limits. Okay. So I love that. I do a multi TV, but, uh, so we have, uh, six TVs going, but the truth is you only really can watch two games properly. 
and 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 as long as they're not coordinated where the same the snaps going off at the same time and we have the side TVs and we're we keep a, a half an eye on it but I often have to re-watch those games so like you I love bye weeks I love the London game because when I can watch primetime in isolation I know I've got full focus on it now I'm not charting uh data and, and notes so it's not uh, it's not the same effect that, that you do where you have to watch each game fully focused. So I, um, I can relate to that. You're what I love about you on Twitter is you're not afraid to like mix it up, go off script, go against the grain. Why do you think, uh, people are generally scared to do so? Like, I remember when I was a guest on 90 degrees and Kevin Davis was asking me, when you make your power ratings, do you then like normalized to like key numbers. And and I'm like, no, I want my number to be its uh, truest form. And then I can decide from there which which side of it I want and which way I want it to move. But I want to keep some of the data pure. Um, why, why are you so willing to go off market and you think people are scared to do so? It's a great question. And we could probably talk about it for a while, but I, I don't regress my numbers to market. Now, I understand that a lot of people do. And I think if you're if your betting sizing requires you to quantify with specificity the size of your edge in order to determine how much of your bankroll you should be betting on that play, like a Kelly or half Kelly or fractional Kelly system, then you kind of have to maybe, you know, regress to the market to kind of like right size the size of your edges. And and that doesn't really make any sense to me because if my model is wrong, I want to understand why it's wrong. I, I want to you know, purely follow what my model says and evaluate its performance against the market. And if it's failing if, or if it's off in some systematic way, I need to be able to identify that to fix it, right? And if I'm just regressing to the market, then I might be covering up, you know, some flaws in my model, basically. Um, I also might be covering up some strengths in my model. Um, but ultimately, because my bet sizing is more standardized, like I bet two or three units on every NFL side that I bet, um, it's, it's really just a matter of, like what my model says. And then I have like an extra layer of analysis that's uh, data-based that kind of goes on top of that. And so when there's a line, I go to three units, otherwise it's just two units. Um, so for me, it doesn't matter how far off market my number is, as long as I see an edge, I'm gonna bet it. Um, and so like, I haven't seen any increase or decrease in performance when my numbers are drastically off market versus just enough off market to create an edge. It's pretty much the same ratio of wins so far in my, in my betting career. Um, so to me, that just indicates that like, what's most important is try to identify the spots where I have differentiation from market regardless of how big it is. Um, and then every year I try to evaluate like, where was I most wrong? Why is there something that I'm missing? And I think you can better self scout um, if you're actually sticking to your numbers rather than regressing them to the market. Okay, so you, you said the keyword there self scout. And I know uh, we both do autopsies in the off season. How often are you doing it within the season? Like, is it every week? Are you self-scouting? Like, not just the bets you made, the stuff that your model uh, showed you versus what actually happened. So the, the bets you didn't make as well, are you evaluating that or, or is it too much to do on a weekly basis? I'm evaluating it in terms of what I understand the teams to be. I'm not evaluating my process during the season. Uh, during the offseason, I really take a deep dive into like more macro concepts and and things about my process and betting system that I'm that I want to improve. But during the season, it's, you know, I go into this game like, OK, I think based on my understanding of how this team performs when they have the offensive line advantage, I project them to have the offensive line advantage here, you know, against this 
scheme that this defense typically runs. Like I expect this level of performance and then that doesn't happen. And now I want to, I want to understand why, right? Were there injuries I didn't account for? Was I just wrong? Is there just less predictability in this team's offensive line or, or the scheme that the defense was running? Like there's so many questions I run through. And when it, when a game um, ends up using my metrics to be exactly kind of how I predicted, I'm not going to analyze that too much. I'm going to say, okay, good. I'm like on the right track with those teams. But when things are really off, I have to try to analyze why. And in some cases it's just, you know, players have bad days, right? Teams have bad days, but, um, and those, and when there's one outlier, it's not as convincing, but it's just a constant process of evaluating where I might be wrong. Right. Cause we're always wrong. Yeah. Um, so you have a, a, a rating for every team every week. Are there times where you know with more certainty that you're on the right track with a team and other times where you're like, I, I know what my number is saying, but I don't know how much I believe in, in what I'm doing uh, and maybe are a little bit like, let me see a couple of weeks run and see how close I am with this team. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of times it has to do with how they got there. Right. So like, um, you know, last year that the Panthers were a really tricky team, right? Because, and the Steelers were kind of like this too, in, in the sense that, they could really once they established the ground game and like could consistently get those rushing gains it was like they were a completely different team but as soon as those runs were stopped on first and second down it, they were just terrible so you had this massive split based on how well they established the ground game which is kind of a unique team profile um, and so there were games where they did really well or really poorly based on that and i had to kind of be like well you know that doesn't mean that they're going to continue especially if they face a better run defense um, so I, I think not putting too much stock in an outlier performances that are specific to a certain context or certain game flow or certain type of attack. Like, I think those are the times where I'm a little more skeptical. Well, you said the Panthers and if you look at the game against San Francisco, you go, oh, this team is terrible, uh, because they could not run the ball. And then you look at their game against Detroit and you're like, this is a playoff caliber team. And like the two skews right there and, and wide range of outcomes, like present themselves when you look at two different games like that. Yeah, yeah, that was a wild game with Detroit. When you build uh, your ratings going into a season, how much of it is just importing everything from last year versus, okay, there's adjustments in the roster uh, and I've got to make tweaks to my numbers? I'm definitely heavily favoring what I saw last year because I really do trust my numbers, especially when I have a large sample size, like a whole season and contextualized for injuries and things like that. So I, I really do stick closely there. And then I adjust based on what I've seen in the off season. But my adjustments are very, uh, they're not very robust or like tightly determined. They're much more based on feel. Um, I tend to think that, you know, individual player level evaluations, whether it's PFF grades or, or wins above replacement or even like positionally weighted value, um, you know, even things like pass rush win rate and pass block win rate, um, those types of numbers, I think are so heavily dependent on circumstances. Like the scheme plays into that, you know, like if you're a defensive end lining up on the same side as Aaron Donald, like you're probably going to have a higher pass rush win rate because, you know, Aaron Donald might be like grabbing the attention of the guy that's supposed to be blocking you. Or, you know, if, if you're a, a left tackle, uh, on a play where Justin Fields is, is rolling out to his right, like all you really need to do is just kind of shove the defensive end to the left, like just keep pushing him out further and further. And that's really easy to do because you know that if you push him left enough, 
he's no way he's going to catch up to Justin Fields by the time he's done whatever he's going to do in that play. Whereas if you have to block for Tom Brady, you've got to cover, you know, for potentially, well, maybe not Tom Brady, but someone holds the ball longer. You got to cover potentially longer. There's more options for what the defensive end can do to get by you. So anyway, my point is so many of these, these player level evaluations are so context specific that I tend to look at teams as systems. And so, yes, like, you know, the bears added a bunch of players. And so, you know, I upgraded their numbers from what they were last year, but I'm not doing it drastically because it's still kind of the same fundamental core. And I need to see evidence that these players are going to make a difference before I, you know, go too far in, in terms of adjusting. Um, but that said, because it's more of like a feels process, like I adjust very quickly early in the season based on what I see. So it's really important to be fluid and not too rigid with your offseason projections. Hey, I want to tell you about Pinnacle. Pinnacle is the world's sharpest sports book and available to bettors in Ontario. Find out what professional bettors have known for decades. Pinnacle is where the best bettors play. Everyday competitive odds, bet smart, bet Pinnacle. Must be 19 plus in Ontario. Please play responsibly. Not available in the U.S. Now back to the show. You know, you mentioned uh, how you play oftentimes is a result of your circumstance. And like, especially I find defensively, if you're on a very good defense where you know your role is hyper specific and you don't have to think of multiple things like look at Patrick Queen. Uh, He looks lost out there for the first two and a half years of his career. And then Roquan Smith gets traded to the Ravens. And he elevates Patrick Queen because now Patrick Queen isn't the guy. He's the number two fiddle. And Roquan does a lot of good things. So his job, uh, you know, his job specifics were much more narrow and he could just use his pure athleticism to actually be successful. So I see it from that perspective. But you said, you know, largely core is unchanged, so you don't want to tweak. What do you do when it's like completely new coach, new quarterback, new like Carolina? Frank Reich is new and the running back Miles Sanders is new and Adam Thielen and Chark and Hayden Hurst and Bryce Young, like everybody's new. How do you evaluate a team that's a jumbled mess that basically doesn't resemble what it did last year? I don't typically bet on or against them in week one. Like I, I'm, I'm guessing, like we're all guessing. Um, so so I think understanding the, the teams that I have very little confidence in versus the ones I have more confidence in is important. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I'm guessing. <laughs> But <laughs> based on what I've seen, right, we, we, we have we have evidence, we have evidence of these players and coaches in different circumstances. You know, there's, there's a little bit of college film on Bryce Young, although, um, you know, college film is, is pretty weak in terms of predictive ability. But what we do know is that rookies uh, don't always, you know, hit, hit their peak right away. So, yeah. And, uh, also, uh, you talked about like, we're guessing and there's teams we all know that the the range of outcomes like you know the atlantas and green bays and washingtons and oftentimes how strong you feel about them is just you picking the spot on the spectrum of of, of your belief in them right and, and saying you know what no i'm more bullish on them and i'm willing to weight it more on the right tail outcome versus uh, i'm more negative on them and I'll, and I'll be on the left tail outcome but like you said until we get more evidence because uh, you said uh, you're going to learn a lot from the Carolina Atlanta game week one. And, and, and like for me, that game is Green Bay in Chicago. I'm going to learn like if Jordan Love can't beat this Chicago Bears defense, then my bullish thoughts on Green Bay might have to adjust very fast. Right. Yeah. I mean, the Falcons are a great example of this. Like I've been pegged as the, the bullish Falcons guy who loves Desmond Ritter. Uh, you know, because some of my posts on Twitter, but guess what? I, I bet the over when it was seven and a half wins plus 100, right? So like, 
yeah, of course I was bullish on Atlanta at those prices, but like at the current prices, eight and a half, you know, juiced to the over, like I actually, you know, hedged some back on the under, like trying to play a middle because it's not like I'm, you know, unbridled bullishness on the Falcons. It's that I think that there's a path for them. Like there's a big unknown at quarterback, but the situation is really good for, for a player like Ritter to succeed. But like banking on Ritter to win nine games as some kind of like, you know, <laughs> juiced bet is yeah. eh. like, I'm not, I'm not there. No. <laughs> and no. I'm not betting on them week one, right? No. Like I, I'm watching Atlanta Carolina with no bets because there is too much unknown on both sides. And I'm really excited to, to learn what I learned from that game. It reminds me of Eric last year, uh, Eric Eager, who I believe uh, was on the forefront of the Restore the Roar movement with the Detroit Lions. And I had him on my podcast, and I'm like, you know, when you mentioned the Lions, they were priced well. And now there's been this full, like, everybody's coming aboard, but the number's off now. You got them a whole game better than they are available right now. So he's like, yeah, no, it's true. I don't I don't feel as strongly at this number as I did at the original number, but I guess that's what happens when a market starts piling over, right? Yeah. Yeah. If I had to, if I had to price the Falcons, I would say eight and a half should be minus one ten both sides. That's my that's my fair. they they are a perfectly, you know, average team. Well All right. they're they're below average team against a really easy schedule, really schedule. which evens yeah. out. Yeah. Well, let's go through the tiers and uh I you know what I love is looking at uh, some of our similarities and some of our differences. And I want to unveil tier one. Now, I've labeled my tiers, but I'm not going to put that label on, on yours, but I will reveal what you have in a tier one. I don't normally do tiers, but uh, in order to be uniform with you, I said, let me do it for the sake of this exercise. And in tier one, you've got just two teams. You have Buffalo first and Kansas City second. I have and I deem this tier the Super Bowl favorites, Kansas City 1, Cincinnati 2, Philadelphia 3, Buffalo 4. There is a bit of a gap for us on how we see Cincinnati and Buffalo. Uh, before we get into that, I want to ask you, what do, what does Tier 1 mean to you? So I, I think uh, back up one step and just to clarify, like, these are what my numbers say. Like I, you know, I, I based on last year's numbers, I made adjustments for off seasons and projections. Um, but these are, this is only one step of my handicapping process. Like the numbers are the foundation. And then there's like other levels to what I do based on specific things that can't really get into. So, so like, for example, uh, you know, Buffalo against Kansas city on a neutral field. Uh, if, if it was a pick em, I like, and I, ha- I was forced to bet it, I would bet Kansas city. So it, which sounds weird because Buffalo is ahead of Kansas City on my numbers. It's 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 a whole complicated thing, but like um, that that's a caveat here, right? Uh, second thing is tiers are just where I see big gaps in those numbers. So like there there was a noticeable gap between the second team and the third team, and then there's other places where there's kind of clustered closer together within those tiers, which I think is helpful, more helpful than just having a you know a number. Sure. Um. All right. Uh, Cincinnati Buffalo I still see Buffalo as the fourth best team and like honestly if anybody wants to put them above Philly or Cincy I'm I'm not fighting them I think it's that close uh you have Buffalo as the best team in football why do you think people in the market in general are down on Buffalo what because last year they were the Super Bowl favorite Josh Allen was the MVP favorite everybody and their mother wanted to bet Buffalo and then something happened and the, the markets and the public don't love Buffalo this year I think three things happened mainly. Uh, the first is their secondary was banged up big time throughout the year. They were missing guys, multiple guys in most games. 
in and out of lineups, never really had consistency. Um, so that, that was a big problem is right. Their defense is predicated on good secondary play, the way that they play. So that was one. Uh, two was Josh Allen made some really high leverage, bad plays in, in big spots. Um, you know, I'm not one to be like, well, it was cause he injured his elbow and was never the same. Um, it's possible. Like, I don't know, maybe, but I've seen enough out of Josh Allen to believe that those plays were the aberration and not the norm. I don't tend to, um, think that players who have proven themselves time and again, that make big mistakes. I don't think that it's like, oh, that's just who Josh Allen is. Like, I think, you know, every, every good player is capable of bad plays. Patrick Mahomes makes bad plays. Right. Um, and then the third thing that happened was just the recency bias of them absolutely shitting the bed in the playoffs against Cincinnati at, you know, at home losing by, I don't know, 14 or 17 points in a game they were favored by five and a half points in. Yeah. And the um, market steamed them that way, right? It opened three, three and a half and the market took them all the way up to six. So like once upon a time, the market loved Buffalo. Yeah. And, and like, honestly, it was a really crappy game plan uh, by the bills, especially on defense. Um, and, and like, you know, Leslie Frazier's gone. So like if, if one of their big problems was the inability to scheme on defense, like I'm not so sure that that's necessarily a downgrade. Like I know that Leslie Frazier is really well-respected and I think that he's done a good job. Um, so it could be a downgrade, but um, I just, I, I, I look back at that game and be like, you know, they couldn't touch Burrow. They couldn't get that. Like Burrow just was dicing them from the pocket and the, the cornerbacks were playing back on the receivers and letting them get seven, eight yards in every play in the snow. It's like, you just can't play that way. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm not going to put too much stock in one weather game. Um, even though it was really bad, I, you know, I, I, I weight games based on recency, but you know, it's still only one data point in terms of the history of the bills. And, and I, I think that they're more likely to bounce back and be the, you know, one of the top two teams that we've seen them be the last three years than they are to fall below the, you know, Kansas city tier, uh, sure. of football teams, you know, um, you know my position on Cincy, and I had this conversation with you about there was a fundamental change on how they ran their offense, and it was week uh, six. It was the New Orleans game. You can trace back the articles where they said shotgun formation and let Joe Burrow have more control at the line of scrimmage, and I gave this out on a episode of Forward Progress, and I said, here's the, the raw data, and remember I told you you have to trash bin the first five weeks of Cincy's season because they were a noticeably different team the rest of the way. And this is where uh, watching film can get married to stats and you can have a higher evaluation of a team than market. I explained that through the first five weeks, Cincinnati was two and three and they were 20th in EPA per play and like 19th in success rate. And then uh, from week six on, when they made the adjustment, they went 10 and one. They were number two in EPA per play. They were number two in success rate. So like, they became everything that I thought they could be later in the season. This is why I still remain high on Cincinnati, uh, and I still am higher than market. Listen, we're three spots apart, but we both obviously are very high on Cincinnati and Buffalo. Um, so that was my perspective of sometimes you got to trash bin a portion of the season and believe what this new version of a team you're seeing is the team. Otherwise, it'll weigh it down for too long. Yeah, by my metrics, they also weren't that necessarily good towards the end of the year. <laughs> um, I, I had them very poorly on offense against Tampa Bay, 
uh, you, you remember that game? Like the only yeah, reason they, they had, won that game was they had nothing the going in the first half, and then whatever they were on, they gave it to Tampa in the second half. And Tampa had nothing going in the second half. It and was not, not just nothing. I think Tampa Bay turned the ball over five oh, yeah. times within their own thirty. Yeah, it, like, was, it was it was the wildest game of the year. I remember because I'm like, I I'm so wrong on a bet, and it ended up winning. And I'm like, I don't know how this this actually broke right for me. Um, yeah, I I 100 remember that game. And then the offense wasn't good against Baltimore in the playoffs. The offense really wasn't good against Kansas City in the playoffs. So if the narrative is that, you know, they fixed the offense, like I didn't see the evidence of that down the stretch. So I'm not, I'm not boosting them up for next year based on that. All right. Tier two, I have this tier and I've labeled it Super Bowl contenders. So this, these are teams that maybe they're not as good as the teams in tier one, but they're more than capable of winning a Super Bowl. Uh, I have you have Philadelphia as your third team. I also had them as my third team. You have San Fran as your fourth team. I have them as my fifth team. You have Cincinnati as your fifth team. Uh, I have Miami as my sixth. You have them as your seventh. The Jets as your sixth. I have Cleveland as my seven. Uh, we both have Dallas as our eight. I have the Jets nine. You have the Jets six and. You have the Chargers nine. I have them ten. So that's our tier two. the The one that sticks out to me is Cleveland. So uh, let's have at it because I believe they're a top seven team, and you think they're tier three. And based on what, George? Based on what? <laughs> so when I start to think of like what are teams weak at, I I find it hard to find true weakness on Cleveland. I like their O line. I think Nick Chubb is the best running back in football. I am willing to give Deshaun Watson the benefit of the doubt. Like, I mean, it, if he plays as bad as he did last year uh, in in first two weeks, yeah, I'm going to adjust. I have no choice. But I'm willing to believe, like you said, if a guy has shown me he's pretty good over the course of his career and we can argue about how good he was in the course of his career, it's hard for me to throw that away for a six-game sample size. I love their defense, defensive improvements. You You know, you talk about, looking at a defense holistically while well, the whole D-line changed minus Miles Garrett. They've brought in two edge rushers. They brought in two new defensive tackles. Last year, they had a cluster of injuries at linebacker. They lost like their first five linebackers. Let's presume that they'll be somewhat healthy. I still like their secondary. I believe they're three corners deep. So when I look at do they have many weaknesses, I say no. Do I like They have one dominant strength, I believe. It's the trenches. And if Deshaun Watson is right, and part of this is projecting, uh, like uh, I see a, a fully a full team. I I don't see a team with many weaknesses, and I see and I see a team with elite aspects to it. What are you not seeing about Cleveland? I think I would feel differently about Deshaun Watson if if not for several different factors that went into this. One is I I was low on Deshaun Watson in the first place. Like I I thought he was overrated to begin with. He relied on a bunch of out of structure deep shots that weren't really like sustainable. You know, we've talked about my system, right? Um, so that was one thing. So so when he underperformed specifically, uh, like his style of play, you know, relying on those deep shots and, and not being uh, comfortable and confident over the middle and timing routes and rhythm and like all the things that like someone like Mahomes does really well or Rogers when he was MVP. Uh, like those things don't work against today's NFL defenses, right? So we we had this gap in Watson's career that coincided with a massive defensive shift towards two high shells and, and focusing on taking away those deep shots. So Deshaun Watson came into the NFL facing different kinds of defenses than what he had before. And based on what he did well and poorly before, like I expected some regression. So there's that. And then 
the other thing is like, yes, it was only a six game sample size, but never in those six games did he even look like a competent quarterback. Like it wasn't like, oh, well, it's kind of up and down. Like you kind of expect, like he showed nothing. Um, and so that that's really concerning to me is like, I want to see like an upswing towards the end of the year that I just didn't see. Um, I, I graded the Browns offense as noticeably better with Brissett than it was with Watson last year. Um, so, so Watson's going to have to be a whole lot better to be uh, the kind of quarterback that takes, you know, a team deep in the AFC or competes in the AFC. I do think the defense is really good. Um, I'm skeptical of their coaching. I think every year people get so excited about Stefanski and I'm like every year he's disappointing and like dysfunction on his team. And like, I just don't like based on my, you know, studying of the team, like I'm just not that excited about the, you know, like them being able to compete with the best teams in the AFC. So they could, they have talent and Watson, you know, can, can definitely be better. Um, it's one of those teams that I'm kind of like the opposite of what you just said. Watson comes out blazing in week one yeah, and two. We're, like, we're both ready to adjust to the, like, yeah. Oh, and we probably should be somewhere more in the middle, but I'm taking the spectrum of the full bull and you're taking the bear. And like, I, we might end up somewhere in the middle there. Yeah. And, and I think it's important. So like when I'm doing my off season numbers, like I have, I have what I currently expect. Like I have to make week one numbers. It's just, you know, like obviously I have to, but what's more important when you're doing these off-season evaluations and projections is understanding the range of outcomes for each team. And and not in terms of how many wins they might get, but the range of outcomes for who they are as a team, right? And on, on offense and defense and special teams, if you do that kind of stuff. Um, and so for me, like I have the Browns as like a slightly above average offense, but, but their range of outcomes includes some much higher numbers. Whereas a team like the Steelers are ranked pretty similar uh, to me on offense, but I don't really see the the high upside that that I see with the Browns offense in the same way. So it's it's important to under and then and then the second part of that is you've got to anticipate what do I need to see exactly in those first few weeks in order to move them to a different point in that range of outcomes. And so with the Browns specifically, like I need to see Watson dialed in. Um, and able to make those consistent timing throws. He's got a lot of good receivers to work with this year. Like it can happen, but I need to see it. And if I see it, then they're going to be one of the teams I rapidly adjust for. Hey, the easiest way to improve as a sports better is use multiple sports books and always get the best odds. We recommend using an odds comparison tool like Betstamp. Betstamp compares odds across every sports book for games, futures, and player props. Save time and money by checking Betstamp before you bet. Download the app today. If you're looking to sign up for a new sportsbook account, please check out the offers available at betstamp.app forward slash circles off or hit the link in the description. If you sign up through this page, it helps support the show. Now back to the rest of the episode. Yeah, I love that. And also, you know how we talk about, um, you know, what you see in week one. Sometimes uh, if you have a wide range of outcomes, you have to trust that maybe what you're seeing is the reality. And sometimes if a team's more rigid and it's it's an outlier example, it could just be like, you know what? Like when Joe Burrow throws five interceptions against uh, ball, uh, Pittsburgh week one, that's not Joe Burrow. Whereas if Jordan Love comes out and throws five interceptions against the Bears, we might just say, uh-oh, uh-oh. Like uh, maybe he's not that good and, and you have to adjust a little bit faster. Uh, let's look at tier three. And I'm happy that both of us have this one team because I believe a lot of people have them in tier two. Um now we do have them at the top of tier three, and that usually means that there's there's room to get into tier two. But uh, you have Baltimore ten, I have Baltimore eleven. Uh, you have New Orleans 
11. And that's another one we're going to have a topic of discussion about because I have him 17th. Pittsburgh, I have 12th. You have him 13th. Cleveland, as we already mentioned, you had him 12th. Detroit, I have him 14th. You have him 17th. Jacksonville, you have him 14th. I have them 16th. New England, I have them 15th. And you have them 18th. Seattle, you have 15th. I already mentioned I had them at 13th. Uh, Minnesota, I have them at 18th. You have Minnesota at 20th. I have Green Bay at 19, and so do you. I have Denver at 20. You have them at 22. And then we'll save this last one because there's a discrepancy there. I have Tennessee 21st, and you have them 16th. Let's start off with New Orleans. Uh, you are higher on New Orleans and Tennessee than I am. Let's start. What's the um, positive outlook on New Orleans? This isn't schedule uh, dependent, right? This is just an evaluation of who New Orleans is as a roster, right? Right. Yeah. Um, obviously, they have an easy schedule, but that doesn't impact my no. yeah, team rating. Um, I thought the Saints were much, much better last year than the market. Um, and it was frustrating because I think like if you look at results, like it was often wrong. I think I lost a lot of money on the Saints last year. Yeah. Um, but just by the way that I understand the game and the way that I grade the game, they just kept performing at a high level. Um, and and it was Andy Dalton, right? Like, I mean, he's okay he's, when he's, he's got the circumstances. But I think what I love about the Saints offense is their versatility and the way that they use role players. So, you know, Taysom Hill's packages make a meaningful impact on what that offense can do, especially in the red zone. Um, when Alvin Kamara is back, like he's a versatile running back. Rashid Shahid is a burner that can really stretch the field. Alave is a, a legit number one wide receiver. I think he's going to show that this year. You know, even Michael Thomas should be healthy. Um, Juwan Johnson is a monster, especially in the red zone. He's like a really good, big route runner with good hands. Like, And you look at Derek Carr and his his career struggles have been in the red zone. Like he's great between the 20s, but in the red zone, he's tightened up. And I think part of that is that lack of versatility that the Raiders offense has had all these years. It's been on him to get the ball in the end zone. And Darren Waller, you know, great over the field, you know, big tight end that can stretch the field, but never has been a great red zone target. So I think that this combination of weapons that Carr is playing with in New Orleans and it's things they can do in the red zone is, is going to up-level his game. And I think that Derek Carr is a better quarterback than Andy Dalton. So I'm upgrading the offense slightly from where it was last year. And I already had it pretty high last year. I do anticipate some defensive regression. Um, so I have them kind of like, we'll see what the defense looks like. Um, you know, I thought they were pretty good last year, but they should be worse. Um, so it, it might be, you know, we'll see how, we'll see how much that impacts them, but I, I'm just put a lot of stock in, in how this offense is going to perform this year. I remember uh, New Orleans was often their 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 underlying metrics were better than the results, and I remember a game where like I got my teeth kicked in was against uh, I think it was Baltimore on the Monday Night Football game where like the line moved to New Orleans, and I'm I'm feeling pretty. Uh, I had been teased uh, through the seven, and I'm like I'm like laughing here, and Baltimore just mollywopped them. Here's where I think uh, our, the gap in our process is because I do put stock in like individual talent and, and what they have. So when I see New Orleans is I see a lot of doubts from my point of view. I see I have doubts about the O-line, the strength of the O-line. And then I have doubts of if Alvin Kamara still has the same burst that he had. He's also suspended. But again, that's not factoring that into my ratings. I have doubts that Michael Thomas will be healthy even though when he does play, he's really good. 
I have doubts of the interior D-line. I like the Brian Bressy first-round pick. I, I just don't believe he should be your number one defensive tackle. And I have doubts if Marshawn Lattimore is still a, a, a number one corner. So when when I think of New Orleans, I, I'm also willing to adjust, but and I, I'm also uh, doubtful. I have more doubts than certainties with this team. So that's part of the reason that I've reduced them. Tennessee's different story. Now, I've moved them up post DeAndre Hopkins, not just for what DeAndre Hopkins brings to the table. It tells me a little bit more about intention. And this is a team that I shouldn't expect Will Levis to see the field. This is a team that wants to compete this year. Let's start with it because I've got them 21st, and I readily admit they are a team that bothers me. Uh, Their underlying metrics don't jive with what I like. And we've had this conversation before about them. You have them more close to league average, 16th. What uh, what do you see uh, in Tennessee that has you saying, you know what, this isn't a bad team at all? Let's start with the defense because um, I think their defense has legitimate, uh, you know, number one defense overall potential this year. I thought I thought their defense was really good last year. Like obviously they had some issues in the secondary, but a lot of that was injuries, right? I mean, they they had guys missing time, especially late in the year at key positions in the secondary. Harold Landry missed the whole year on IR. They added Aziz Alshair. They added Arden Key. <clears throat> they added uh, Sean Murphy Bunting to the to the secondary. You know, Mike Vrabel can can coach up a defense. Jeffrey Simmons is a monster in the middle. The, these guys are are really really good on defense. Um, and then on offense, they've got you know a, a quarterback who can get the job done in Ryan Tannehill, like a proven good quarterback. Um, we'll see. You know, offensive line is a massive question mark. Uh, we'll see how much juice DeAndre Hopkins has left in the tank, but I think he's got some. Um, Traylon Burks should be better in his second year. Kyle Phillips should be better in his second year. Um, the, the tight end, Conquo, I think his name is. Um, like, you know, he's fine. He's, he's a bit player, whatever. Derrick Henry's still going. Like, I, I'm not, I'm not the kind of person that, you know, says, all right, well, Derrick Henry has this many carries and he's this old, so he's gonna suck this year or he's gonna like drop off this year. I'm someone that reacts to what I see on the field. So yes, like my, my ears are tuned to it. Um, but until I see that on the field, like I'm just not going to like project it to happen in the very next game. Maybe it's something that happens halfway through the season and maybe gets hurt again. Maybe Tannehill gets hurt. Maybe, you know, they start rebuild mode, whatever they signed Hopkins, which to me seems they're not in rebuild mode, but um, there's a lot, there's a lot of potential downside for this offense, but I'm basically just saying they are who they were last year. So what did my numbers say they were last year uh, with a slight boost to the defense based on those guys coming back healthy in those additions? Uh, and that's where my numbers spit them out. They're below average offense, but they're very above average defense. So I'm with you. I, I thought they had one of the best front sevens in football last year. They were very good at stopping the run. I think losing David Long and bringing in Aziz al is a little bit of a wash. Where I do think they did improve is bringing in Sean Murphy Bunting because I believe it beefs up the depth of their cornerback room, especially with all the guys who got hurt last year. Still yeah. believe they have two of the better safeties in football. Um, I I just maybe pinpointed where um, our biases uh, create differences. So I played offensive line in school, and I love trenches. It, it's where I begin to formulate my thoughts when thinking of a game. So when I have Cleveland a little higher than you, I'm – very bullish on an elite O-line. When I have New Orleans and Tennessee below you, I that's what is holding me back for Tennessee. I hate this O-line. I think it's 
maybe the worst O-line in football. And I believe when you have a, a truly terrible O-line, you have a ceiling for how successful you can be offensively. Unless you have a player like a Burrow or a Mahomes or a Herbert who can elevate past a, a weak O-line and, and make adjustments, I don't think that Tannehill can with a, with a bad O-line. So I think that's where the disconnect is happening. Um, because besides that, I love their defense too. I think it's top 10 with a lot more higher potential. Um, and offensively, I actually think Chigo Conco is one of those hidden, like I liked him in the combine last year. I'm a workout warrior and I thought he blew it up. And I, I think Traylon Burks is like sneakily going under the radar and maybe he shows a little something. So it, to me, it's really the O-line that's dragging it down. Let's look at tier four. Cause we have some discrepancies there as well. Uh, you have Atlanta 21st. I give you stick about Atlanta, but I still have him 23rd. When you said eight and a half is the range, I'm like, yeah, that's the range I have him in, like in that eight win range. So it's it's not even, I just, you know what it is? I'm fighting back against, I've heard like they can win the NFC. And I'm just like, no, I'm not. I'm not buying the right, right tail. And I, I don't think you've ever said it. But like Rob Pizzola's come out and said it. Oh, oh no, no, I've said I've said most regular season wins for oh, for Atlanta. I bet okay. it's sixty one. So, yeah, so uh, that's an inch. I think that's schedule dependent because I told Rob I go if New Orleans is marginally better than expected and the rest of their schedule, which is like a bunch of high variance teams, are worse. New Orleans might be a top two seed in the NFC just because of circumstance. And he's like, if I could find a bet that says New Orleans wins the division but loses first round game at a right price i'd be interested and i think that's kind of the methodology behind it like this division's so bad if you're just pretty good and the schedule's so soft you might have a really uh a really good uh opportunity on, on the right tail um you have denver 22nd i have them 20th so we're both a little bit down from market i have the giants 22nd you have them 25th i have washington 24th you have them 24th uh, Tampa Bay, you have 23rd and I have 28th. So that's one discrepancy I want to get to, but we'll do that when we get to tier five discussion. I have Carolina 25th. You have them 28th. I think this is the biggest discrepancy. Um, uh, you have Chicago 27th. Uh, no, I have Chicago 27th. You have them 29th, but I have Houston 26th. You have them as the second worst team in football. And maybe I can start on why I'm bullish on Houston. And then you can counteract that again. And unfortunately, when I made these ratings, I haven't factored in Titus Howard. It's going to miss six weeks, so that hurts. But again, when I like to look at like how a team is built, I start thinking about the O-line, and I like their bookend tackles. I think Tunsil and Howard are good, and I like that they went and got Shaq Mason. And I think Kenyon Green, I know he was very bad last year, but he was a first-round pick, and I'm, I'm saying he, he could be better. I'm buying a little bit of uh, their uh, rookie center and some of that. Outcome. So when I start thinking, I go, this isn't a battle line. So what about the collection of weapons? It's like Nico Collins, John Mechie, um, the tight end from Dallas, Dalton Schultz, and then Damon Pierce. I go, this isn't bad. I'm also very bullish on Stroud. And I said, if he can just be decent and they can be like 24th, 25th ranked offense, I like their defense. I like D'Amico Ryan's coming in. I think Will Anderson, I know people, the thoughts about him is they overpaid, but if you, you had a chance to get an elite pass rusher and they did, I like their corners. If if Derek Stingley is as good as I've been hearing about, uh, him, Desmond King, and Steven Nelson aren't a bad starting place. 
And, you know, when I think of Jimmy Ward, a guy who knows the Miko Ryan system, uh, beside second round pick Jalen Petrie last year, like I'm starting to, I start to look at this defense and I go, if I've got them about 24th, 25th on offense and maybe 20th on defense, I don't think this team is a bottom two, three team like everybody else does. Why are you so bearish on the Houston Texans this year? If they're better, then they'll show it, right? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, you say you like the offensive line and like, it, it, you know, you, you probably understand their offensive line better than I do, but like their offensive line didn't help them last year. Um, and, and so like, you know, maybe they're marginally better with Shaq Mason. I don't know. But like, ultimately, like teams are systems and the system wasn't working on either side of the ball last year. Like their defense had some okay games. Sure. Like they got some, they got some talent and good scheme. Um, but really they just weren't a, that competitive of a team. So to me, adding a question mark rookie quarterback in CJ Stroud, um, isn't really inspiring, you know, having a unknown at head coach and quarterback or at offensive coordinator really just, is kind of like a empty question mark for me. Um, so like, I don't, I don't see a reason why I would expect CJ Stroud as a rookie to be better than Davis Mills as a second year player. I like Davis Mills personally. They don't have a ton of weapons on the offensive side of the ball. At least, you know, like they have guys that might be good or were once good. Um, and and so I just and and a defensive minded head coach. So I don't really I don't really think this is a great situation to develop a quarterback like C.J. Stroud. Um, but at the same time, there's so many unknowns on this roster. So if you're right, this is going to be one of those teams that I adjust based on what I see. Um, I, I I'm not I'm not going to punish them for who they were last year when they have so many new pieces. I also recognize that their like piece by piece roster does look good. It has a lot of good names that I really believe in. Uh, but we'll just see how it all comes together. Yeah, I believe they're finally building foundational. Like their free agency strategy the last two years has been one-year deals with everybody. And it's like, this isn't thinking long-term. It was kind of almost like they're just getting to the to the point where they're waiting to draft a quarterback. And now I'm finally starting to see guys that I can, I believe will be on the roster in three years, which last year there was maybe three guys on the roster that you thought would be there the, three years from now. So I think... I believe they're laying some of the foundation down. And listen, I'm 100% on the bullish side. And we talk about range of outcomes because I don't believe Houston has this absolute monster range of outcomes. I'm just, as a person who loves CJ Stroud, when I think of Houston, I think of them more like a six-win team as opposed to a three-win team. And I think that is the disconnect. Um, my tier four, I labeled it not completely awful, bad teams, teams that are, will be frisky. Even if the wins don't, don't, uh, show up tier five is, uh, I labeled this the probably should tank for Caleb Williams tier. And I put, uh, Tampa Bay 28, you had him 23rd. So that's one place I want to have a discussion. Uh, you had the Rams 27th. I have him 30th. I had Las Vegas 29th. You have them 26th. Uh, you have Carolina 28th. I had them 25th. Uh, I love this one be, uh, because I've heard a lot of people who believe Indianapolis has a really good um, upside to them. You have Indy 30th, and I've got them 31st. So we have some agreement there. And we both have Arizona as the worst team. Let's start with Tampa Bay. Uh, tell me why they are 23rd on your list. I think we're going to have to talk about offensive lines again, aren't we? Um, yes, we so, are. So, 
so to talk about that, right? Because people hate Tampa Bay and, and the Rams because of their offensive lines. To talk about that, a couple things. One, I don't think that we're as good at projecting how good offensive lines are for an, any given season. And that's in part because it's a five-person unit, five, six, seven-person unit potentially um, yeah. with you know the, the range of injuries, the range of you know bad performance, the rain, range of improvement. Like, any any variance we put into a player, like you're you're like square you know squaring it across the line, um, and so you have things like last year, like we were sure the Steelers' offensive line was a problem, right? Because you know behind Ben Roethlisberger was getting the ball out within two seconds every play, and still there was getting pressure, and they couldn't run the ball, you know, at all. Even with Najee Harris, it was like this offensive line sucks. And then by the end of the year last year, the offensive line for Pittsburgh was one of the best in the league by you know by some people rating it. In part because every single player on the line stayed healthy the entire year. They gelled. They you know really had some cohesion. They they just really played well. And so I don't think that we have as much certainty. And and so a, a team like Tampa Bay, people start with saying, "Well, the offensive line sucked." And I think a lot of the same things that happened to Ben Roethlisberger's line happened to Tom Brady's line last year. Um, they suffered injuries at key positions, center and left tackle. Um, those guys should be back. Like I, I don't want to like lean too heavily into it because I know they're both coming off major injuries. Um, and they might be asked to do different things, right? When, when Tom Brady was running that offense, there was no threat of quarterback mobility. They, defenses knew what was happening. It was a lot of screen passes, a lot of, you know, Tom Brady taking shots downfield and it was, it was limited offense in terms of what they could do. And I'm not saying that Baker Mayfield and Kyle Trask are like, you know, Anthony Richardson in terms of what they can do, but, but just a little bit of mobility, just a little bit of difference in, in the way they run their offense might take some of the pressure off you know, the obvious runs that they were setting up. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they just continue to run the ball in first and second down every play and, and the def- you know their offensive line sucks again. Could happen. But I just think that when things dramatically change, like a quarterback changing, I tend to give the offensive line more of a blank slate and more of like, a, yeah, let's kind of see how they do, especially with two guys coming back from injury. And I think if, if the offensive line is okay, the Bucks have great weapons on the outside. They've got a great defense, great defensive-minded head coach. Like this is a solid team all around outside of quarterback and offensive line. So I, I think if you solve the offensive line, or even if they're mediocre, then this is you know a competitive team that's that's going to win a few games and compete with some good teams. Yeah, when you look at defensively, like their D line still has a lot of talent. They still have Devin White and uh, Levante David at linebacker. I still like uh, Carlton Davis and Jamel Dean, but I also I was high on Zion McCollum. I know he didn't play much or didn't play well as a rookie last year. I believe he could fill in for Sean Murphy bunting. I like Antoine Winfield. I think he's one of the best safeties in the league. I thought Ryan Neal was one of the more under-the-radar safeties. And I, I like their weapons. So, again, it does come down to O-line for me. And I guess I this is where my weight goes. I The problem I have with it is Tristan Wirfs is moving from right tackle to left tackle this year. And he was a damn good right tackle. I don't even know that we can fully assume he'll be a damn good left tackle. Sometimes guys don't adjust right away and it takes a good portion. And Ryan Jensen was once upon a time a good center, but he's also close to 30 and coming back. So when I, I'm more cautious when I think of him. And then I look at like Luke Godecki and uh, the rest of their O-line. And, and, and I when I look at it, I'm a little bit more uh, bearish. And then... I also have a hate on for Baker Mayfield. I believe he sails like to me, 
we're going to solve the greatest riddle in the NFL this year is can Baker Mayfield airmail Mike Evans six foot five? Because that to me, I cannot wait to see that dynamic play out. So, <laughs> but if the O line plays well, like you say, even just mediocre, because I have him as like one of the four worst O lines this year potentially. So if they play even mediocre, there's enough other talent on the roster. The schedule soft enough. Um, so from that perspective, I can understand that. Uh, the other thing is I really hate their coaching staff. Every time uh, Todd Bowles spoke at a presser, I'm like, oh, this is such an archaic way of thinking about football and running the ball. You have to establish the run. I just uh, part of the metric is coaches. And I believe he puts a cap on 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 them from on that kind of perspective. The other one, I guess, um, I don't think we're too far off and everybody like we're three spots off on on the Rams. But I think we both fundamentally agree they'll be stronger in the beginning of the year and may regress towards the later portion of the year. So from that standpoint, well, let's do Indianapolis. Why are you and I missing the boat on them? What? Why are we so much against the market on Indianapolis where I think they're the second worst team in football and you think they're the third worst team in football? I just don't really see the avenue for them to improve on last year. I mean, Anthony Richardson is a different dynamic at quarterback, surely. I mean, I, I don't know if he'll start week one. Let's let's assume that he does. Um, so there's there's a massive unknown right there. I mean, we've seen offensive lines perform at a higher level when they have a mobile quarterback like that because it makes the job easier. We've seen mobile quarterbacks that can really get going in the run game less reliant on weapons on the outside. So, so I do understand the bullish case for the Colts. Um, but again, I've got to see it to believe it. And what I saw in the limited amount of college film I watched from Anthony Richardson is some really, really nice looking plays and then some really, really dumb looking plays. Um, and so like, if you watch a highlight reel of Anthony Richardson, you come away thinking this guy is like, you know, the next Mahomes, but then you watch like a full play by play and it's like, what, what was he doing on that play? Um, and the thing about the NFL is it's all about consistency at the quarterback position. Like you can't afford to have nine good plays on one really bad play, let yeah. alone, you know, six good plays and four really bad plays. We've seen that with Justin Fields, right? I mean, he's, he shows up on the highlight reels with these incredible plays, but con down to down consistency and timing, like just isn't there. I don't really see that happening with, with Richardson. So I just think that this is a team that doesn't have a lot going for it. doesn't have the weapons, doesn't have, you know, the defense was kind of whatever last year. And I think, you know, getting an injured Darius Leonard back isn't really going to, or Shaq Leonard, uh, isn't really going to, um, you know, move the needle too much for me. I, I think I'm willing to move them if, if Anthony Richardson makes a material difference. But going into the season, I'm not expecting it. Yeah. Um, you, you talk about hands off week one, though. You talk about consistency, right? Like that's the Deshaun Watson. It's scrambling around and hitting big plays versus a, an offense that is methodical, moving the ball down the field. So you, you'll you strike a team or a player that's more relies on big shots as opposed to consistently uh, good putting good plays back to back. Also, we have this like mentality. Everybody's like, you know, when a guy's a mobile quarterback, you got high range of outcomes, but they usually don't have that early in, in their experience. Like, Justin Fields didn't have that early and even Jalen Hurts didn't look good in his first year as a starter. Yeah. Although if you go back far enough, you know, RG three really killed it as a rookie. And so did Lamar. There's, there's definitely, a, and you know, Anthony Richardson has a little bit of that. The the only, the only thing I will counter that is I guess RG three, 
is unique because I believe Kyle Shanahan's like one of the most brilliant minds we've ever had in football. And Lamar was very much insulated by a team that was already playoff bound with Joe Flacco. Whereas when you're when you're come onto a bad roster and you're expected to to do really well, uh, it's a little bit more of a difficult transition. But I guess we are both willing to adjust if uh, Indy shows something and Anthony Richardson does. But I'm with you, right? As it stands right now, I am more bearish on them. Let's talk yeah. about... Oh, just, just real quick, if your angle is, you know, well, Shane Steichen, like, really did some work with Justin Herbert as a rookie and then Jalen Hurts for two years. If that's your angle, like, the, the Jalen Hurts thing is like, yeah, the Eagles had an elite offensive line with elite weapons downfield, and Jalen Hurts was in his, uh, well, third year last year. Yeah. Um, that's a completely different scenario than raw rookie with one year of college production in which he threw like 55% passes or whatever uh, with a worse offensive line and Michael Pittman's your number one receiver and there's not really a great number two different situation yeah AJ Brown and Devontae Smith are probably better than and Dallas Goddard are probably better than all the weapons on the Colts so like situationally this is much different let's talk about uh personal goals uh, you say you're an ultra competitive person who likes to succeed. I am too. I don't like to do anything half-assed or mediocre. Um, if you put me in a room and like, it's a new board game and I've never played it by the end, I'm trying to figure out optimal strategy and I want to win. Like that's how I'm wired. I'm not there to have fun. I'm there to win. What are some personal goals you've set for yourself this year? Winning is fun, George. It is. Um, <laughs> So, so my, let's start. I know you're, you're going to ask me my long-term after this. I'm going to flip yeah. the order. Um, okay. My long-term goal, my, my ultimate goal is to consistently beat late week NFL spreads, right? So, so Saturday, you know, Sunday, whatever. That's a really, really difficult goal. Um, I'm not there yet. I, I hope to be soon, but you know, it's going to take a lot of time to really prove that because if you can do that, then I think your options are wide, right? That you can get down a lot more money. You can, there's just things you can do with that. So that's my singular goal. So my goal this year to, to take it back to your question is, is to evaluate where I am in that process, right? So like, I want to put my model, you know, day by day, like what, what games I would bet at current lines at which books and, and track and see like, if I was betting those amounts, like how would I be doing this year? Um, so my goal this year is to succeed on late week NFL spreads. That's that's the the long term goal and the short term goal. But um, I'm realistic and and thinking that like it's not going to be something I get overnight, uh, but it's something I'm working on every year. And this is the first year that I felt like my system is developed enough and sophisticated enough to really get the job done. So I'm excited to see whether or not I'm able to do it. I love it. I want you to keep sharing your journey. You know, uh, when I was talking to producer Jason, usually I send like 25 questions uh, to people and I take stuff out on the fly and I'm like, just to make sure that I can get enough good stuff in. I think I sent you like six questions and I'm like, oh, we'll fill the hour. Like I, I, I already know her and we crossed the one hour mark. So we did it, uh, Clark, I think uh, three combined episodes and we've done maybe five hours worth of speaking. So that's always a good time. I want to thank you, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate being here. I hope that uh, your listeners are able to get something out of it. And um, I would DM me if you have any questions or want to yell at me or whatever. Like I love, I love engaging with people that, that think about this stuff as much as I do. So. And they can find uh, you're doing live shows every Thursday, right? Tell, tell them about that. Yeah. Move the line uh, as podcast I do with 444.com, which is where I, I write my analysis as well. 
Um, we release every Thursday. We, we're going through divisional previews right now, but we'll also do some some in-season stuff where we talk about different matchups and stuff like that. All right. I, I can't wait, man. We're, what, five weeks away, and the anticipation is killing me. Just I, I, I am so excited. Thanks so much, Clark. Yep, thanks, George. Hey, that's it for me. Another edition of 90 Degrees is in the books. I want to thank my guest, Sharp Clark, NFL originator, content creator at 4 for 4 Bets, the sponsor of this. Of hey, that's it for me. Another edition of 90 Degrees is in the books. I want to thank my guest, Sharp Clark, NFL originator, content creator at 4 for 4 Bets, the sponsors of this podcast, Pinnacle and Betstamp, and my producer, Jason Cooper. Thanks for listening. Do me a favor before you go. Like the content, subscribe, share, and comment. We'll be back next week with another guest on the 90 Degrees podcast where we give an inside look into the sports betting industry. That's it for me. Hope you enjoyed. Until next time.